Our top story is what happened in federal court. The dismissal of an application for a judicial review of a landmark human rights tribunal compensation, all about compensation for First Nations children. It's a complicated ruling. And to help us better understand it, I'm pleased to welcome to the program Sarah Clark, child protection lawyer and member of the legal team with First Nations Child and Family Caring Society. Welcome, Sarah. Good afternoon. Thank you so much for having me. Can we begin with just the top-line explanation of this ruling? I mean, this is a slam dunk. If you need a top line, uh, it is an overwhelming victory for First Nations children, their families, their communities, and it is a victory, I think, for the country. What the federal court did yesterday was say a number of important things, but what it really did was vindicate the victims of Canada's discrimination in this ongoing human rights complaint. Uh, What the federal court said was that the human rights tribunal was right and that Canada was wrong, uh, that First Nations children and their families who have been victimized by Canada's discriminatory conduct are entitled to compensation both for pain and suffering and for the willful and reckless conduct of the government. Does this apply specifically to uh, victims of the 60s scoop and residential schools, or is it wider than that? So it's not actually uh, a historical claim. This is one of the first and only uh, human rights complaints that I'm aware of at this level, with this many kids impacted. Uh, That's actually in the now. We are talking about children from 2006 to this very day who are impacted by Canada's discriminatory conduct in the delivery of child welfare services on reserve, as well as in the delay or denial of social services to First Nations children. So this is not something in the past. This is something that we as Canadians need to be looking at directly. It's happening today. It happened last week, last year, and 10 years ago. So this really captures from 2006 forward. So the... The, the federal appeal or the application for judicial review, was that based on on cost, on the, on the amount of money that uh, is, is at play here? I mean, I think that's a great question, Alan. I think um, we really need to look critically at why Canada brought its application for judicial review in the first place. You know, its court documents don't say it's too much money, um, that's not, they're not quite as direct as that. They said, for example, that the tribunal did not have the jurisdiction to make this award. They made some arguments that, well, we know that we've caused harm, but we didn't have any kids. Not even one child came to testify. Uh, they made a lot of what I would consider to be legally technical arguments to try to deny the rights of victims in this case to be fully compensated. Speaking with Sarah Clark, who's a child protection lawyer, talking about this ruling uh, from the federal court. What kind of money are we talking about here? Can you give us a sense? So the Human Rights Tribunal can only award a maximum of $40,000 per victim. So $20,000 for pain and suffering and $20,000 for what's called willful and and that that kind of uh, compensation is for uh, perpetrators of discrimination who know better and who could have done better. And that's one of the, the cornerstones of this ruling is that the tribunal said 
The Canada knew that it was discriminating against these children and these families. They knew how to fix the problem and they chose not to do it. And the federal court yesterday said that the tribunal was right in coming to that conclusion. So what does that mean for actual compensation in, and you know, money actually going out the door? Well, the first thing uh, we need to know is whether or not the federal government is going to appeal yesterday's ruling. They have 30 days to advise the parties and the court if they want to appeal the ruling. If they don't appeal the ruling, um, what has been going on in the background, the parties have been working closely together to build a compensation, we call it the compensation framework, to structure how the payments will be made, to make sure that there are mental health supports for the victims, to make sure there are financial literacy services available to those who will receive compensation, and to obviously build a a widespread national uh, compensation framework to make sure that it's done in a good way and paid out uh, responsibly. So those things will have to come together. Um, That has not been uh, finalized as of yet, uh, because we need to know whether or not the government will appeal. Um, Much of the reporting refers to uh, Jordan's principle. Can you tell me what Jordan's principle is? Yes. So Jordan's principle is named after Jordan River Anderson of Norway House Cree Nation in Manitoba. Jordan was born uh, with complex medical needs and was in hospital for the first two and a half years of his life. You know, he needed to be on a ventilator. He needed a lot of medical care. But after a couple of years, the doctor said that Jordan could go home into a family home, a supported family home uh, with continued medical care. Uh, But the government of Manitoba and the federal government got into a fight about who would pay for Jordan's care. If Jordan had been a non-First Nations child like my son, uh, he would have gone home and his health care would have been covered. But because he was a First Nations child, the government fought about who would fit the bill. And for two and a half years, they fought about who would pay for his medical support. And sadly, Jordan died in hospital when he was five and a half years old, never having left or had the opportunity to live in a family setting. So Jordan's principle, named in honor of Jordan and with the support of his family, is a principle that simply says that First Nations children, despite uh, their identification as a First Nations child, have the right to access social services just as any other Canadian does. It's a very simple principle. Uh, You shouldn't be denied or delayed in receiving services because you're a First Nations child. And and yet it appears that in this application, in this ruling by the, the Human Rights Tribunal, that it is not being upheld. That's right. We have a, there are a lot of ongoing concerns with how Jordan's principle is being implemented by the federal government. Uh, and in terms of how the ruling unfolded yesterday, uh, we now know and we have confirmation from the federal court that the federal government cannot block First Nations children who are identified by their First Nation and their First Nations community as being a First Nations child. And they can't deny First Nations children who have, who have at least one parent who have or, or are eligible for Indian Act status. So what really yesterday's ruling says is that the federal government can't put barriers on who is identified as a First Nations child for the purposes of accessing services. So it's a very, very important ruling. Sarah, thank you so much for helping us better understand which is a, what is a very complicated uh, decision that came down. Again, appreciate it very much. Thanks very much, and uh, looking forward to the rest of today's program. Thank you. That is Sarah Clark, who's a child protection lawyer and a member of the legal team with the First Nations Child and Family Caring 
society. And as you heard in the interview, this is about the here and now. It is not about historical wrongs. But part of today is about better understanding some of those historical wrongs.